Um, my name's Yoni Pryor and I'm a lecturer at Deakin University. Um, and this is David, and this is when he's not in the box, and this is John when he's not behind the door. Um, so we've got about 20 minutes and I've got some questions I'd really like to ask, and maybe after that, if you're willing, I could open up to questions from you. And I had a very brief interchange with David in the last couple of days and I said, what, what should we talk about? <laughs> and he said, he said stigma. And I was trying to think through, apart from the sort of obvious issue of the stigma surrounding the use of a party drug, in inverted commas, as a therapeutic measure, there's also some sort of story maybe around the, the stigma attached to PTSD, which is really mess with. So why, why has it been so hard to get the research done? Um, oh, you mean the MDMA research, mm. the clinical research? Yeah. Uh, because, well, because there is a big taboo around um, ecstasy, mainly, as the, you know, as you referred to it as the party drug. Mm. The, um, when The Age did an article last week, that the headline was something like pill-popping pill rave drug, possibly a cure for PTSD, you know, so everyone talks about it in those terms. It's got that association, unfortunately, with the rave scene. Um, Whereas it's actually got, you know, really, um, it's got very high therapeutic potential. All the psychedelic, well, most of the psychedelic drugs have, which they're um, investigating now. It's like psilocybin is being trialled for um, treating lots of things, different things, depression and um, addiction. So they're looking into all these, all these things that were once used, actually, for therapy. Like LSD was used for therapy. MDMA was used for marriage therapy, I think, in the, uh, in the 70s. And uh, because, because of, you know, the, the, the stigma that it's, that it's acquired because of the rave scene and, the, you know, the high profile, you know, the stories that get in the press about people dying from, from something that's probably not actually MDMA they've died from. Um, it's probably PAM or um, some other corrupted thing. Or it's because they've not been drinking any water yeah. for 12 hours or something. Um, too much water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so it's a crime. It's a it's sort of a crime. It's a, it's a crime against humanity, really, that it's being the research into this is being suppressed because it's got such obvious potential as a therapeutic tool. Mm. So that's what we're talking about here: re researching it as a therapeutic tool, not not getting off your face on it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's I suppose that's why the the it's been hard to. Um, it, I mean, the, the trials that have been going on in the states now that it's, they it took them three years to get. Um, a state-approved uh, trial going, just to fight for, for that. And it's taken a sort of similar length of time in the UK now. They've, just, they've started the trials now in Cardiff, um, not far from Port Talbot. And um, the trials in America, they started in 2001, I think. And they reckon that by 2021, it'll, MDMA will be a, a, an approved prescription drug. Yeah. So, so in, the, in the narrative in here, mm. it sounded like MDMA was um, a f also a facilitator of, of a sort of talking therapy, is that right? Yeah. Um, so it's seen as a tool to assist psychotherapy. 
Um, and it's not something that's temporary. It's just a sort of opens a portal to this part of your brain that you've kind of locked down. Locked down. Uh, locked down. And um, yeah, it uh, once then that, that door is open, it remains open, even though the effects of the drug have worn off. And you have done this work during the, the initial opening of that portal, if you like, and addressed this issue and explored the issue for the first time, probably. Um, you know, they, they asked for people who had chronic treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress uh, for the trials. So these people, in some cases, didn't have clue what the trauma was really, what the trigger was, if you like. Uh, in one case of a, a US Marine, it was actually something pre-war, and they worked out that he actually went to war in order to be killed. And that, that the MDMA sort of allowed him to unpack all of this horror stuff that had happened to him in, in war to get back to this original source of trauma that um, was, was making him depressed and you know having all these other side effects. Um, so yeah, uh, you lie on a couch um, and two psychotherapists, well a psychotherapist and a nurse sit either side of you on your futon. You have an eye mask and wear sumptuous headphones that have beautiful music playing, uh, mostly instrumental. And you can bring your you can bring your dog with you if you want. Yeah. We saw uh, a, we saw a video of a guy a guy I interviewed. He allowed us to view his video of his therapy, and um, he was allowed to, he had his dog with him on the futon. Mm. Mm. Quite interesting to watch, wasn't it? You could you couldn't actually tell that he was on on en on anything. He seemed very very sober and rational. But actually, there is a clip on YouTube if you're interested. Um, I think you just you just search for um, MDMA therapy. There's a, like a 10 second clip of a of a lady um, on the futon, having taken the MDMA, talking about her her trauma that she hasn't been able to um, process for 15 years. She's sort of tried every other every kind of therapy. Mostly exposure therapy, I think that didn't that didn't work. So you can see her, and actually she does look high, doesn't she? Mm. She does look, and she's doing some um, strange sort of gestures yeah. with her hands, but she's not yeah. jumping up and down, pumping the air. You know, she's okay. sort of yeah. in a kind of magical type realm. Mm. Mm. And then what else do they do that's of interest? Are oh, they they go under? So they sort of have long periods where they just listen to the music and put the eye mask on. Yeah. And then they sort of surface and then talk a bit more with the therapist mm. and then go back down. And, and it's all very carefully monitored, you know, with the, they take their pulse at <coughs> regular intervals, that kind of thing. Mm. And um, it's what they call client-led therapy. So the, the two therapists don't try and push any agenda at all. They wait for the, for the client to, um, or the participant to um, bring up the trauma, as we, as we talk about in the, in the play, you know, the... the, the Participant brings up the trauma, not the investigator. But if the participant doesn't bring it up, the investigator <laughs> just saying the play again. Can, can can bring it up. Um, but yeah, they wait for it to unfold in a in a very sort of nat natural way. Michael Mithoffer, who's the guy who's been um, leading the trials in in South Carolina for the last fifteen years, he um, describes. He, he says that the, the psyche has its has a sort of inner inner healing mechanism just like the body does, that you know, if you go into a hospital with a big gash in your arm, that the consultant you see can't actually cure the gash, but he can, he can remove all the obstacles to you know, the body healing itself, and that the mind is doing a similar thing. And in, you know, in this therapy, with the use of the MDMA, which stimulates the prefrontal cortex and suppresses 
fear, you know, in the activity in the amygdala. So it removes all, you know, removes that and increases your um, your own perception by stimulating the the prefrontal cortex. Um, so you can actually look at this thing, almost like you know, you've, prior to that you've been going like this. I can't look at my trauma, and suddenly you can look at it um, with this very sort of self-aware, good self that's in, enhanced by this drug, and you can actually you know treat it. This the lady I referred to earlier that you can see on YouTube called it. Um, she described it as going in there and being able to reprogram my own brain. It was as if my, my best self was able to take care of my worst self, is how she described it. Yeah. So, so when you start describing it in, in those terms, suddenly yeah. it's dignified by science and it's dignified by scientific yeah, yeah. <laughs> language, you know, when you can say it operates, you know, when you can call something an SSRI or, mm. you know, you can say it operates on this part of the brain and yeah, yeah. suddenly it's, it doesn't sound like a party drug. Yeah. No, no, I mean, the set, the, set, the set and the setting are really, really important. That's what they keep on emphasising, you know, that it's not, you're not taking it a room, in a room full of loads of people jumping up and down. You've, you're there, as we say in the play again, <laughs> to, sorry to quote the play again, but with, you're there to do work, yeah. you know. You're there to work on yourself. It's not, it's, yeah. I, I mean, I think the work that's been done on improving this to get over this stigma has actually been more thorough than you would have with your average kind of antipsychotic. Mm. So they know, they've... Um, able to sort of map these uh, neurotransmitters operating during a, an, ex, uh, an MDMA trial. Um, whereas really, you know, when people are, I've talked to researchers about things like clozapine and they, it's, it's largely a guessing game. That they, um, they're sort of just chucking chemicals into the brain and watching the responses. Um, things like, you know, shutting down some, some transmitters but not all of them dopamine ones for example and then the ones that are remaining become hypersensitive so then when they come off the drugs uh, you know there's this sort of huge uh, overload and then they go berserk again so then think oh well the drugs are obviously good you know so then load them up with more chemicals and one issue here might be that actually for the pharmaceutical companies it's not of interest because the drugs are out of patent so they can't be exploited so it's in their interest to you know poo-poo them in the media, etc. Mm. And of course the media love that. And, it's know, also, I suppose, that you don't, need to, you don't need to keep on, keep on taking the MDMA long-term. Mm. You just you have a maximum of three sessions yeah. on it. And some people only need one session. Mm. Yeah. Nobody's yeah. going to so, make money out of this. No, no. Except in the longer term, of course, loads of money will be saved yeah, because yeah. Um, of the cost of long-term care. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, this kind of brutal, ongoing, prolonged exposure that they are so um, strongly committed to. Uh, mm -hmm. That costs a lot of money to facilitate, and of course the people have to keep coming back and back and back. And uh, there's a waiting list in the UK at the moment for uh, 18 months for a two-week residential prolonged exposure session, which is mm -hmm. all that they offer for post, um, you know, soldiers in post-traumatic stress. Um, and now uh, things are changing a little bit. The, the US, you know, are leading the way with these trials, but they're also now recognising PT post-traumatic stress injury as a war, a battlefield injury. So it's been treated in, on, on site, behind the wire kind of thing. Um, whereas in the past it was just, you know, you go home and you start going crazy in the supermarket and uh, kill yourself. More, more soldiers have killed themselves um, than have actually died in the battlefields of Iraq, Afghanistan, um, both from the UK and Australia and America, is what, from what I understand. I was reading there like 20, something like 23 suicides a day in the States. 
So is part of the mm. issue that uh, MDMA is associated with pleasure and so, you know, one of the things that the sort of puritanical forces in the culture continue to resist also with, you know, marijuana, which is mm. slowly becoming legalised as a, you know, as a, a measure for pain relief where that, that works where others... Mm. don't, is that there's some very deep <laughs> Calvinist Puritan suspicion of anything that... Yeah, but what, about, what about alcohol? I mean, that's supposedly gives, you ple gives some people pleasure and uh, here we are it having... It somehow yeah. got through <laughs> really <laughs> early. It just got through really, really early before the gates closed. Yeah. <laughs> we had a comment on um, the ABC post up the interview that I did with... Um, Steve McDonald, who's an Australian war veteran from, you know, he served in Somalia and um, he had post-traumatic stress and self-administered MDMA like our characters and uh, healed, felt, feels like he's healed himself through that process. And we had a brilliant interview, very thorough, talking about, you know, this sort of giving a clear understanding of um, destigmatize why it was important to destigmatize it, etc. And the first kind of troll comment came. The, actually, it's the only comment at the moment on there saying, "So they're going to get off their face. Uh, you're going to help them get off their face so they stop complaining." Duh, is something like that. And um, so you know, there's the there's lo it's loaded with lots of things there that w stopping complaining. You know, the idea that you come back from war and you're a man and you're, you know, or you're a woman and you're strong and you come back and you be a kind of hero. So one of these therapies that they've used in America in this sort of previous era was uh, called a hero weekend where people who were depressed post-war and de deployment would, would go through this sort of glamorizing medal ceremony where they were made to feel macho and whole you know, and sort of celebrated, but it was so fake that obviously it didn't work and it didn't address any of the issues. So part of the stigma is this thing of going, actually, yeah, it scares the shit out of me, these war situations, and I can't cope with it, even though I had my basic training, etc., and learnt how to fire a gun. I don't like killing people. You know, that's a, that's a huge stigma for anyone who's got any kind of involvement with army or military, and even outsiders who are funding these... Um, bodies and we expect you know we sort of as a society expect these kind of macho representatives to sort out the baddies and then come back and be strong leaders of you know IT companies or whatever um, for example I have a school friend who was in the marines and he, he never got deployed that's where that line came from <coughs> during this sort of apart from Bosnia or something peacekeeping and uh, you know he's come back and he's sort of his, his voice is now 25 octaves lower and he works as a kind of managing of manager of IT acquisition or something very nominal but he's sort of, you know, I can imagine him kind of waddling around and he's still doing triathlons and sort of desperately trying to prove himself as this huge figure and I asked him, because he's from Wales, uh, which is where I was brought up um, you know, do you have any friends who've got post-traumatic stress that we could interview and he said I don't think anybody's going to talk to you about that you know it's a bit of a sensitive topic you know just sort of dismissing and brushing away so there's this whole stigma about what what on earth the army are doing you know what on earth it is to be a strong person um, and so what we're destigmatizing in a way is saying you know 
It's okay to be weak. It's okay to be broken. That's human. You know, it's a natural response to unnatural circumstances. Killing people is unnatural and not what humans are meant to do. That culture seems to be incredibly persistent, given that all the sort of public narratives, everything on the telly, you know, endless homeland all, is all about, you know, you would think that the narratives at least of the last decade or so have been about legitimising that sort of behaviour, but it just doesn't seem to be penetrating the institutions. You know, it's a fantasy, isn't it? We, we, we imagine, like, American Sniper is a problematic kind of example of the portrayal of post-traumatic stress, um, that he sort of struggles through it and he's a man again by showing people how to shoot guns. And then somebody who's even more disturbed than he was, you know, is, is picked up and we know then from the story that he's killed. What we don't know is that there was a huge lawsuit, I mean, from the film this is, that... Um, Chris, what's his name? Chris Kyle um, had this huge lawsuit with a mayor who had sort of dismissed some, uh, you know, regimental success, and he tried to sue him for defamation. You know, it was a huge kind of crisis of ego, um, and it's not included in the film at all because it didn't fit that narrative. You know, that we all sort of we want the dream narrative, you know, we, we go to Hollywood for fantasies, we don't, we don't go there for reality, you know. Um, but there are more, like uh, TV films coming out of the BBC, for example, where they are embracing the reality and it's really quite horrible, you know, this is a very shallow, short engagement uh, of some sort of people from very poor socio-economic backgrounds, which is the army's top recruiting ground. Um, you know, they sort of, you don't find them on the high streets of Hampstead, for example, but they're there in Middlesbrough, in Newcastle, Manchester, Birmingham, and they scoop up these bored youths, and then they sort of rush them through training, rush them into war, they get bashed around, blown to bits, whatever, and then, and then um, come back, and, and some of these gritty kind of new BBC dramas are showing that, just this sort of people being spat out back to the situation they were in, but in a much you know, sort of debilitated state. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's really unpleasant. It's not your fantasy movie that you'd say, hey, you've got to go and see that, <laughs> you know. It can't, it can't attract audience because we, we don't want to embrace these things. We, we, want, we want happy stories, you know. That box, for example, people wanted a happy ending for the box. And we've actually written that happy ending for it in the last day. That's, that's the happy ending, the empty box, you know. Because we had so many complaints that it was too depressing. Yeah. <laughs> there we are. Well, it was sort of ominous, I, I guess. I kept, um, I kept wondering where the self-medication and the, the amateur therapy, you know, the mate therapy was going to, was going to lead. And you, you sort of didn't... We haven't really talked about... We've talked about the content. We actually haven't talked about the theatre bit yet. But there was a sort of very interesting tension there because you're sort of playing on this edge all the time and just when you think you're going to go off the cliff, you, you, you pull it back. But it's... Uh, it, the, the situation is actually fundamentally quite dangerous. Messing with, you know, drugs of unknown provenance and therapists who have no 
training. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's not, it, you know, he's not cured. And rather like our previous work, the eradication of schizophrenia in Western Lapland, um, which was ref referencing open dialogue, which is a very successful approach to working with psychoses. Um, we didn't want to stage that because it was totally undramatic and um, had no kind of unresolved conflict and tension. So we made a, a scene or set of characters in proximity to that so they knew about it but were unable to sort of bring it into their system, and, um, which is the case of many practitioners in the UK. They know about the Finnish way. And even in the rest of Finland, I should say, it's only a small area of Western Lapland where this method is, is used. So rather like that, we didn't want to stage this brilliantly undramatic, diffusing uh, system. We wanted to have characters around that who were sort of drawing attention to it in a way, but yeah, doing it as best they could and ultimately failing. You know, what he gives me is clearly not MDMA and it's not therapy. It's sort of a, an approximation of that. But very quickly, I dip back into some kind of speed, speed sort of rush and um, hypervigilance and paranoia when he goes off to talk to the guy outside. So you know, it, it, there's a little kind of feeling of maybe there's a bit of MDMA in there, but it's not the real stuff. It's not pure, and the circumstances are all wrong. So we learn about it, but we don't. You know, we remain with a kind of very tense, problematic drama, which therefore hopefully entertains people and. You know, switches their minds on. Maybe it's time to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just wanted one question, which was about the box, because this is a this is a a play in which we don't see all of any of the actors. So, was that a formal decision, or was that something that came out of a, the the story or the narrative? Um, probably a bit of both, actually. Uh, not quite sure exactly how it started, how these things do start, um, but we had last November of last year. Just prior to that, I had interviewed this um, a very generous uh, war veteran uh, who'd been on the trials in South Carolina, and then I interviewed Michael Mithoffer, and then we both, and then David heard those interviews as well and saw the video of the guy on having the therapy and then we both went to the Imperial War Museum at different times and were both struck by an exhibit which was um, sort of a box really. Uh, it was actually a one-man nuclear detection capsule that, that sits on a warship. We'd never heard of this kind of thing before and it was quite just an interesting thing to look at and so that kind of got us going. Um, Is that Putting people inside? Yeah, for putting, putting man inside to monitor possible nu nuclear attacks. So it's a sort of little little cubicle with a sort of panel and some buttons and yeah. things. Uh, it looked good for a theatre set, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looked great. <laughs> great compact going. and portable. And so, so did you want to say something? Well, I was yeah. just going to add that then that uh, turned into us doing an improvisation at Hijinks in Cardiff, which is where the, the bulk of this play was made in 20 minutes in Cardiff. Uh, hijinks is sort of the Welsh equivalent of back-to-back -back. and uh, they were trying struggling to get their heads around our making process which is what the whole week was about you know what is long-form improvisation so could we do it could John and I do it so we just sort of our head full of these things this this uh, metal box etc and John just spontaneously got under a table 
and I found this door doorway up up some uh, in a kind of wooden panelled stairwell that went up to the top room above this chapel. We were in Bethesda Chapel in Cardiff, and um, we we riffed this twenty minute sequence without any planning really, um, and uh, you know. We were both American soldiers because we'd just been interviewing Americans, so that was what we what we knew. And then we said, "Oh, look, that's how we do it." But you know, we won't carry on, even though it was on a really brilliant roll, and they were laughing their heads off um, because we're not recording it. And then a girl in the audience said, "Oh, I, I was recording it because I've got chronic fatigue, and if I don't, I'll miss everything." We had two narcoleptics in the workshop, so between them we got everything <laughs> covered. <laughs> and, um, and then we, we transcribe, edit, etc. And then we went to, we were here for Culture Lab, um, and we, we staged it in a way that you could see everything in the box, like this, like this metal detector thing in the... But, yeah, we, and we had sort of, like one half of the audience looked at just the side of the box, like you see, you don't see in, and then the other half saw in. And um, it, it felt like, you know, Jacob was creating this amazing world in there, but it just wasn't possible to, you know, sustain that tension. Um, whilst the door thing was quite interesting, this sort of thing of not being able to get in. So then we were in Salford and we had a lot of war veterans there and, and there was a Falklands War veteran, a woman who had been a nurse on a ship and she described herself as spam in a can. And so that kind of reinforced this feeling of like it's dangerous to put yourself in that at the same time as it being a self-cure and at the same time as being a metaphor of the illness. And then somewhere around there we decided to just spin it all around and make the box, you know, is the theater, the audience are in the box. And then there's this kind of element in there which is a very mobile kind of version of the whole idea. So Jacob's box that John was in actually looked very similar to this. You know, pulleys, wire grates, etc. Um, other little boxes within the box. And then, so it just kind of got enlarged. Mm. So the, that's sort of one of the key turning points, I think, was that. I mean, it's sort of, it's something, it's like it's happening, but then people say things and you think, oh, that confirms it. And then you go, well, that was the moment it happened, but actually it was sort of happening before. Because you get this kind of feeling. We we often show work to people unfinished, and it's terrible, you know. And they, but those failures are where we get our best our best things from. You know, we cannot show the person in the box. It's got to be mobile. But you don't know that until you've sort of bored people to death for ninety minutes. <laughs> you know, there we are. Does anyone have a question? Are, are there any physical side effects? This is just for the recording. Sorry. <laughs> And, and yeah, how long are the sessions? Um, physical side effects from taking MDMA. Well, anyone who's taken MDMA, and actually statistically, there'll be people in this audience who will be still taking MDMA recreationally, but um, their use of it will be non-problematic because it's, not, it's a non-addictive drug. Um, we'll know that it, it, there, are very, there are very little side effects, very few. And actually, in the trials, there have been no ab adverse reactions to it at all. I mean, they test. I think they test everyone before you know they, before they agree to do it. I mean, before they actually do the therapy, just to make sure there's, you know, they don't have any health problems, like a dodgy heart or anything that, that might uh, exclude them. 
but I think there's, there's, there, there are no side effects really, and they, they stay in the they stay um, they have a whole day with actually before the, sorry before the MDMA therapy starts they have several psychotherapy sessions with the same therapist who are going to lead the MDMA therapy over a period of months, You're sort of preparing them for it. And then the first session uh, on the futon, it, they're actually there for 24 hours, so they spend the night there. After, it's, after the effects have worn off, they stay there with a nurse um, just to make sure everything is, is fine. And so they're really taken care of, so there's no, there's no danger really at all. Uh, sessions two and three also 24 hours. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah. It's the same. They, so they three 24-hour sessions. That's if they need sessions yeah. two and three. They don't. They don't all need it. Need it. And if yeah. they, it's a triple, double blind or triple blind trial. Yeah, yeah. So you don't know if you've got it or not, and the the therapist doesn't know either um, in the dose. And so if it, they reveal at the end of the uh, sessions whether you were actually on the dose or not. And if you didn't have it, then you are then given a session on it. Um, and yet they have lots of improvements just, you know, on the placebo. Um, but then, you know, when they take it, it really sort of goes, gets home, you know. Um, so one of the guys that, um, that John interviewed, he, he was so disappointed that he actually had the highest dose because it meant he didn't get the extra and he missed then the therapeutic kind of circle and he was... I don't know if it was a joke when he said I actually was traumatised by that. And I'm, not on sure, I'm not sure. John's character, you know, says it's quite traumatic you know, not having Ellen anymore. His little homemade therapy. Well, that was situation. true, and that was what yeah. Virgil said to me. Yeah. yeah, he said they're such lovely people. These therapists, you just you kind of want it to carry on forever. <laughs> you know, but the good thing about MDMA, well, what Virgil said is that it's it's like having um, twenty years of therapy in an afternoon. Or, or 20 years of meditation in one afternoon, and there is actually an argument, you know, that eventually it, it could be it could be more you know, widely available for people who want it, not just people with post-traumatic stress, but people with um, self-development, you know, who want to work on themselves. You know, why not? <laughs> yeah, I can answer. That. If John answers that, and then I'll answer your question, then we're wrapped. So I think I can answer. Um, well, I mean, according to the MRI, the magnetic resonance imaging scans they've done, what it does, it's, it's, it sort of works primarily as, it, as releasing serotonin in vast amounts. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter, as you probably know, associated with well-being and happiness. So it sort of floods your, your brain with that and um, releases as well. It triggers the release of a load of hormones like oxytocin, um, and prolactin, which are both associated with milk production. So these, these are all very positive feelings, you know, like in, in mothers, you know, towards, so they feel compassion and stuff towards their, their new, newly born. And, um, and it's also associated, they're also actually associated with orgasm. So the feelings you get before and after orgasm, um, prolactin and oxytocin. So yeah, you're flooded with all these very nice feelings. And as I said, yeah, it also um, suppresses the activity in the amygdala, which is this sort of, um, Armed-shaped structure that sits on top of the hippocampus that's responsible for our fear response. So you, you know, you 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 you, you feel less negative. You don't you don't get scared. So, but I think that's basically what it does. If that if that makes sense. Exactly. Ex exactly. Yeah. And, and it, it's cortisol is another another hormone that it releases, which is uh, 
responsible for sort of emotional learning. So all your all your senses and your intelligence some, somehow you know stimulated and very very acute. So you're able to look at, look at this thing without as well getting really distressed and showing all the signs, all the, all the post-traumatic stress symptoms. <laughs> there is actually a drug, there is a prescription drug in America, I don't know whether they have it here, called Zoloft, which you have it here as well, which I think they, they, they prescribe for people with PTSD. But the diff and it, it has a similar, it does a similar thing, it releases a load of serotonin, but it doesn't do it like in the same way that MDMA does. And you have to take it every day. That's the difference. You have to keep on taking it. I'll, um, I'll just answer the man's question there. Um, so there's, if there is a normal methodology for us, um, it will involve a block of work. Uh, and then if during the work we feel like something's come up that we really want to expose and understand how it goes in front of an audience, then we would try and rapidly arrange a sharing so maybe if we feel like we're in flow, we would, on day two even, we would know that by day five we want to put it in front of people. And sometimes that would be just reading from a very quickly transcribed script. Um, other times it, it takes us a bit longer, we maybe we feel less sure of ourselves and um, we don't want to expose it immediately and we'll do another development and then it, perhaps at the end of that there might be something or we might be obliged to show something and we'll fail miserably but learn a lot from it. Um, so it does really vary on how successful we have accessed flow and material from that flow. Um, so in the, we can only really give example by example and I think what was different with this project was that we were doing the first development live, like the, the improvisation was happening live with this audience of workshop participants. So it actually lifted our game a lot. And um, consequently, this, this process had been extremely efficient. So that 20 minute period, and then three weeks here with Culture Lab, which really the first two weeks were the only, when, you know, maybe in that time we would have done two hours a day for say six days, so about 12 hours, 12 hours, 20 minutes. And then a lot of thinking in between. And then the Salford residency, where we didn't, we made a little bit new material with the Carol character with some students. Um, and that was a couple of days, I think, before then there was another sharing, which was quite a big high pressure one, um, in that there were lots of, uh, you know, clients of uh, Poppy, for example, which is a charity for um, ex-soldiers and uh, veterans etc so maybe another few days there and then we just basically went from that to a run at Bath Fringe uh, where we booked ourselves in for five shows of this unfinished work that we were still exploring um, and that that really puts the pressure on then to you know entertain and generate like finished product every day for five days. So it's quite an intensive blast. And then in the recovery from that, we did one, we sort of redrafted it a bit, but didn't meet. And then met uh, a conference in Brighton and performed it again, sort of the draft, pretty much what you saw tonight. Um, I, didn't, I did neglect mentioning that we also did two, or maybe, th I think only two uh, Skype kind of devising sessions facilitated by a company called Sheep Knuckle, 
which are two two young dudes from Manchester who are very good with video, and they brought a projector to my place and hooked us up with this sort of very high quality version of like Skype, but it's called VC. It's used by therapists, and so John was in London in a box on his kitchen table, and I had him projected onto my wall, and and then and we did it the other way around as well. So we had two sessions like that. So all up, probably you know, ten days it was made in, um, but with all this thinking time around it, and yeah. So how many sharings? Five in Bath, one in Brighton, one in Salford, one at Culture Lab. No, two at Culture Lab, and then this kind of one instant exposure at Hijink. So eight sharings, and all of them failed. I would say, um, in different ways, you know. But we, it's not, it is not that we relish failure. We, we know that failure puts that pressure on us to then respond to the failure. And it's that moment that we relish. That kind of rescue, as uh, Philip Gaulier calls it, calling Mr. Flop. You, you ring him up on the phone. But that's sort of in our, you know, kind of performative knowledge. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Dan.